0: And factories told us that they cared about this, that it was a a really big priority, so we sold in this great system. And then we saw that in practice, (laughs) people ended up using it on a regular basis. There would be an energy engineer logging in once a month or once a week, and that's just not enough to drive real impact. Hey, baby.
1: Hey, guys. Today I talked to Lauren Dunford, who's the CEO and co founder of Guidewheel, which is a company that's helping factories around the world in seven countries and counting improve their sustainable peak performance and really helping out with climate change as well. So I learned from Lauren today all about how entering entrepreneurship was never a given and what her path into that was like, as well as how. Neither her product offering with Guidewill today was a given and just the pivots that she and her team took to get to where they are today. Super interesting to hear about how much attention they pay to customers, feedback, market trends and how that changes and why it's important to listen to that to make sure that your product offering is always improving and updating. I also learn about relentless testing, how that's a big key to success for her. And also another key to success for her and just how much of it she's getting. So enjoy Lauren. Hey, Lauren. (laughs) Hello, Jan. How are you? I'm so stoked to talk to you. I love you and you've got great energy. So I'm just so excited. And I know it's very early for you too. So I'm here to start your day off with a bang.
0: Well, I've been excited for this and just feel so
1: honored. I think the world is new and feel lucky to be here. I feel lucky to have you to, so, like, get us started. What are you proud of yourself about in the past week? Um, see.
0: It's probably a small thing. Um, but mm-hmm. It really matters to me that I'm supporting my team, growing their own career goals in addition yeah. to all the work we're doing at Guidewheel. And uh, I invested a fair amount of time in supporting a couple of members of the team this week and feel proud of that. Uh, It was received really well, uh, hopefully helpful. And I feel like there's no greater joy than to get to build and learn together. Uh, So being able to set aside time to support that learning part. um,
1: That's that's so awesome that you're making the time for that. I think everyone appreciates that so much when you're manager and your case CEO Really prioritizes that. I think lots of people talk about it, but it's really hard to implement because you need to schedule it, book it, prioritize it into goals. So that's wonderful. Good for you. All of it in advance, helpful. Help. <laughs> <laughs> and then what brings you joy these days, Lauren? Oh, gosh. And I want to ask you the same. Thing. Yes. Let's do it.
0: Oh, so many things bring me joy. Right now, and this is. A very frequent one, but we live at the outer sunset of San Francisco. And so every single day, I get to run on the beach and the sunsets. I'm
1: so jealous of you.
0: Yeah. They just <laughs> so there are all little lovers on the beach, these little birds that I love. And the
1: sun is setting and just, you know, who, who could ask? For? Honestly, who could me? ask for more? What I'm proud of is we launched the podcast in the past yes. week. I know this episode will go live post that date, but we're recording within the week of launch. And I'm honestly having way too much fun with it. I love talking to you and everyone else I get to talk with and learn about all these new ideas. And I love getting to work with Marcin as well. And it's just such a blast. And I hope we can have meaningful conversations and create spaces for learning and growth. And then what brings me joy these days, our community in Austin, we are feeling like we've got a really good group of people who we love and admire. And who we get the opportunity to take care of and who get to take care of us back. Uh, Tomorrow, we're having some friends over for a pool party. And by pool party, I mean the (laughs) grandma-grandpa edition. So, uh, and then, and it's just such a treat, you know, to be able to have six, six six-ish couples who we adore around and get to see them regularly. So it fills our cups with love. Amazing. Oh, that sounds fun. Yeah. All right. So, do I remember correctly, Lauren, that you grew up in Berkeley,
0: the Berkeley area? So, yeah, Sacramento. Um, ben grew up uh, from age two to ten in Albany, this little piece of Berkeley, and uh, then okay. a little further east in the East Bay at age ten. Um, but that Albany time was uh, that piece of Berkeley time was uh, the okay. I felt Like
1: I most identified with growing up. Amazing. And so I'm just so curious what it was like being raised in the Bay Area in general. It was such a fascinating spot in the world. Lots of things happening, so many movements, and we'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. I feel like I, I just lucked out
0: in terms of family and childhood. Um, and that Berkeley area is so much fun uh, in terms of the creativity and the like, yeah. things that... yeah that also my parents were kind enough to expose us too. So uh-huh. one of the things growing up that I love the most is there's this beautiful park in Berkeley called Tilden uh-huh. to be part of this junior ranger program. Uh, we would spend every Saturday uh, kind of out in the hill. You know, <laughs> and That's awesome. That's a Little frog. Frogs and we got to help um, catch, which is, you know, kid heaven to go to wait around in a pond. Yeah. Frogs. I just spent so much time doing little backpacking adventures every uh, month, so backpacking Mm -hmm. every month, hiking every weekend, and I started as a participant in the program and then got uh, to be lucky enough to help lead it and kind of corral these younger kids and take them out for these wilderness experiences, and so a lot of my childhood was uh, centered around the outdoors and how can we as much about our natural world as possible and get as dirty as possible out there in the
1: mud doing it that sounds like the dream also Macin talks a ton about his had a similar experience it was called boy scouts in poland and sounds also like a real leadership opportunity and then just being outside being comfortable with nature the area is so beautiful already and natural beauty with the mountains and the water so wow and then what about your parents how do you feel like they influenced you in your upbringing
0: yeah so many ways um and i just feel so lucky i think um both my parents are people i you know both love and appreciate for, for bringing me up and um you know creating such a great family and also just people i admire tremendously and the work that they do um, my mom's a physician and then started spending about 50 percent of her time maybe three decades ago um, building out Kaiser's uh, domestic violence programs. So there was an kind of incident with her sister where she felt very motivated around domestic violence and how can we create great resources for women who are in violent situations at home to get connected into resources that can help. So if you ever walk into a Kaiser and see that there is another way poster. Or That's your mom. I witness campaign. Um, certainly, you know, it, it's something that a lot of folks contributed to and led over the years, but it's something that she poured her heart and soul into building. So we had all those posters out there. Yeah. So I've um, got to witness um, you know, that, that program evolving and her commitment to it over the years as it started in a small way and then uh, got much bigger. So just so proud of um, the way that she cares so much about her work and also the impact that she's been able to have in that area. And then my dad um, made you know, a lot of the outdoorsy stuff and getting into science was just because of him. He's an incredibly curious person yes. and has spent his entire career, This is now uh, about 40 years, um, helping kids learn to love using data. So he has cool. evolved uh, his entire career in actually building tools that let kids channel their curiosity around you know, how the natural world is full of data, how all of our lives as humans are full of data. And it's this program that's now called our Common Online Data Analysis Program, uh, CODAP, that is free, uh, available to students and teachers everywhere, and lets them and play with data in interesting ways. So you can only imagine uh, our household growing up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, You're seeing math problems on napkins, so. We had a, a party once at our home where, um, as people came in, my dad had set up a little station for them to measure their wrist circumference and type in their wrist circumference, type in their height, and then he was projecting uh, onto our living room wall uh, how those things correlated. So,
1: oh my goodness, that sounds amazing. <laughs>
0: it was definitely very data and science and math focused. Okay. Was a ton of fun.
1: I feel like that embodies you, like the energy and love for exploring, and then the intellectual horsepower that you have. And then so fascinatingly, you and your brother are entrepreneurs. So Devin is the founder of OpenSea. To what extent do you feel like your parents, the fact that your mom was spearheading this program, your dad was so data-driven, and what other factors do you think influence potentially your interest in entrepreneurship, both of you?
0: Yeah, uh, great question. Short answer is I actually have no idea. I <laughs> think.
1: Yeah. It's really hard, right? It's like there's so many things that go into this and it's just uh, tough to pinpoint and and figure that out.
0: Yeah, and so I I think definitely have have no clue kind of how how those um, experience translated in terms of of what it's been like to get to both be building at the same time. It's so fun and such an honor to get to share that experience. Um, So that's been amazing. Um, I also think it's, it's interesting to think about the very different paths that we each took. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, I think I ended up, you know, starting Guide Wheel a a little bit just because Jason and I, my husband, were planning to move to Kenya or kind of saw, you know, this, this interesting opportunity, had different experiences at Love Foods. So I don't feel like I necessarily was, you know, aiming toward it. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I'm curious your experience as well. Yeah, I, I definitely feel like, you know, this is a problem I'm to solve and a customer base I want to serve. Yeah. So then uh, that I necessarily knew I was going to be a founder or start something.
1: No, absolutely. Just looking at, back at my life today, I wouldn't have been able to predict that I would be doing this today. And I think lots of people feel that way. I was chatting with a couple of folks about that recently, too, of how life doesn't really make sense mo- looking ahead, but it does looking back in hindsight. And that's what's so wonderful about it. Uh, Being open to experiences and trying new things really uh, is so eye-opening and can take you down various paths that lead you in in a lot of ways to better things that you could have ever expected or hoped for. And so I'm so glad that you brought that up about how it's not so much, it wasn't really a plan. It was more something that you stumbled on. Was it the same for Devin as well? I think he had much
0: of a long-term
1: vision.
0: No, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just have been so impressed by the long-term vision that he's had. I mean we definitely now have a long-term vision, but I think it evolved more than you know yeah. from the start. I definitely, you know, from my perspective, admire tremendously the conviction he has around the direction the world is and uh-huh. has tried to make sure I'm absorbing that what I'm doing and how I'm building as well. Are you
1: older, younger? What's your age difference?
0: Older, yeah, three and three quarters years, so almost four years.
1: I like that you were still close enough where you can be a part of each other's journeys too. And what's dinner at the Fincer home like? Oh gosh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it
0: definitely spans the, you know, the gamut of different things. Uh, usually uh, my mom will be working on something related to uh, whether it's family violence or uh, she's increasingly doing a lot of work around adverse childhood experiences, the ACEs, mm-hmm. uh, kind of trauma-informed care, et cetera. So she'll bring up something about that. Uh, my dad will have something just saying he's read in National Geographic or Scientific American or have you know, woken up early to watch the the telescope get launched, oh. something like that. Um, My brother, of course, will have uh, the latest on the gas prices, and (laughs) and, and (laughs) And then I'll usually have something about uh, whether it's a new factory that we're working with that makes something you never would have thought of, some component, and whether it's igloo coolers or uh, a component that makes sure that your car functions properly. Uh, I'll have some, did you know how it's made Uh, from one of the factories that we've recently started working with. So it is a very interesting discussion.
1: I love that so much. It sounds like such a dynamic, fun household to be a part of, like nerdy and fun and cool all in one. Definitely. Fun but- and
0: nerdy. <laughs> 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 Exploration. And how about you? Wonder, like, when, yeah, like a household. What's it? It's that. Uh, table.
1: Yeah, I think what people find most interesting is the mix of cultures because my mom is Ukrainian and she's also spent almost half her life living in West Africa. And so she speaks Ukrainian, she speaks Creole and she speaks English. And it's funny because when she talks, sometimes it's a combination, like a sentence will have all three languages. And and it's just it's just funny because if like, I have a friend or I have much, you know, I need to translate. I'll be like, mom, you need to pick one. You need to speak English. <laughs> you need to just to this so people can understand you. And it's like, she just owns it. She's like, no, I have this, these experiences and this is my life. And it's great. She's like, people can adjust and learn my language, my whatever the combo of those three is. These days, it's talking about what's happening in Ukraine. My dad's a physician. And so he'll talk about the patients that he's seeing. He really enjoys traveling to the village he grew up in to provide care as well. And a lot of it entails me saying, Dad, you need to travel less because you need to take care of yourself and not burn yourself out. And he'll be like, no, I need, I can go. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. So a lot of it is me trying to get him to work a little less. And then my brother will be talking about real estate and his deals. And I'll, I'll tell them about what I'm working on. So an interesting mix of cultures too, which I really, really appreciate. And I'm looking forward to passing down. When much and I have kids in our family, what I will say I really resonate with your family is my parents also were really good at instilling this sense of curiosity in us. So growing up in Sierra Leone, my mom would always encourage me to question things. My dad would tell me a lot about medicine. And it, I always felt like I could ask questions and that the sky was the limit, that I could do whatever I wanted to do. I always felt really confident about that and my abilities. And I think that's a really big gift that they gave me that has set me on this path to fellowship eventually, which I think comes from asking questions and believing you can go answer them. And so I'm really grateful to them as well. Incredible.
0: Love that idea of the, you know, seal. Definitely resonates really strongly. And also, oh my gosh, translating from a, a sentence with three languages at that end, I can only <laughs> imagine the, the mind to do that because uh,
1: students are has been doing a great job of interpreting that. Speaking of cultures and family, let's talk about our partners. So your partner, Jason, is Kenyan. And uh, I know that you lived in Kenya for a bit. You moved from the U.S. to Kenya I grew up in Sierra Leone, West Africa and moved to the U.S. And I know Kenya and Sierra Leone are different, but the U.S. is likely more different than them. So curious to know what your experience living in Kenya was and whether it changed your perception of the U.S. in any way or has influenced you in any way.
0: Yeah, I mean, mean, the the short answer is I just feel so lucky to have had that experience. And uh, it was incredible. I also feel lucky, you know, Jason and I have been together only 17 years now so wow with right because you we're all started in undergrad yep that's We've been, been a- together in a long time <laughs> wow um so it's been amazing also to have it not be you know just moving for those two years and you know, being with his family and, and being in kenya but also just being with him for that long period of time going back and forth um and so it's uh a very long term you know, lifelong mm-hmm. balancing of those two worlds um, in terms of the, the time living there, I just, yeah, it was so big and amazing. And I think the, the thing that really sticks with me is just all of the people who supported and are doing such incredible work, and not only in Nairobi, the are based but we were lucky enough to get to you know, spend time at another areas of Kenya as well. And so much creativity and exciting work going on. So I, I think just one of the experiences in my life that I am most grateful for. And the other kind of reflection from a question you asked around how does it you know make me think differently about the US, it's been very interesting to you know, have started and piloted with initial groups of factories in Kenya with guide wheel. Then as COVID hit to launch in the States and kind of start that that second market um, had an amazing local team continue to run the Kenya business to all our customers there and continue expanding that business, um, but to also see how what we had built for that environment could be so useful uh, to factories in the states. So I think it's been amazing to see just the similarity uh, on the of the production floor of the challenges and also the opportunities uh, be so consistent, across now in seven countries, the yeah. uh, types of factories location, types of tea, but all, you know, striving for continuous improvement and uh, similar opportunities to to make a really big difference. So it's also interesting to see that. Do you
1: feel like there's room for improvement in processes? Are we behind in terms of development on that front in factories? I know that that's one of the things GuideWheel is here to improve and change. Yeah. So one of
0: the things I love about
1: our customers, uh, manufacturers, is that if you were to say, is there room for improvement
0: to any customer? In any role, they would always say yes.
1: That's awesome. <laughs> The
0: philosophy of continuous improvement, uh, never resting where we are, but always getting better every day, uh, which is something that just resonates for me really strongly uh, with our customer base and something I just feel like so privileged to get to support. So I think everyone would always say there's an opportunity to improve. Um, and there are certainly, you know, from what we've seen, very. Uh, the amazing thing is, um, you know, not only has technology improved so much uh, in the last few years in terms of the types of tools that teams can have, technology has also become much more accessible. So that teams who previously, you know, couldn't spend millions of dollars up front or bring troops of consultants to the plant floor to tunnel into every machine brain uh, now can have systems that are much more plug and play. Um, so, it's very exciting to see not only that continuous drive for, for continuous improvement, um, but also the development of tools that make that uh, possible to be faster and better uh, and support those teams even more holistically all of the time.
1: Perfect segue. You want to tell us about GuideWheel and the tool that you're building to help improve factories and their operation?
0: Yeah, at its core, um, we're taking those factory floor and that real time visibility that used to cost huge amounts of money and be accessible only to a few. And we're making it plug and play with the vision that any one of the 10 million factories on this planet can have great tools for their team to support their business success. Um, And also in the way that we've built those tools, uh, we've built in all of the energy and carbon reporting that can be a real meaningful difference when it comes to climate change. So the vision is if we can, you know, get guide wheel at scale or on factory floors and millions of factories around the world. That'll have not only a big impact on those businesses and for those
1: teams, um, but also a really meaningful impact and be part of that solution for change as well. Can you break down for me really pre guide wheel and post guide wheel? What's the difference for a factory?
0: Yeah, definitely. I'll actually use an example that Industry Week did a feature on the other day. Um, so, this is a company called uh, PenColor. Color. They have five plants. Um, they're producing a variety of, of different products uh, out of those plants, um, mostly in the color space. Um, and prior to GuideWheel, they were tracking a lot of uh, what their machines were doing manually. So any factory, and here if I get too nerdy, stop me.
1: Or, or uh-huh.
0: <laughs> But factories care a lot about uh, if their equipment is running because if those machines are running, there's product coming up and that's product they can sell and the you know, revenue they can bring in from these very expensive assets. And uh, you would not believe how much of that runtime is lost on a day-to-day basis. Uh, typically, averages around twenty percent of that runtime is lost. Um, sometimes that's you know, a machine that breaks down, and everyone's running to fix it. Um, but it's actually far more frequently the, the day-to-day human stuff of whether a machine is being changed over from one product to another, and the person doing the changeover needs to run to the back because the material wasn't ready. Uh, grab a forklift, you know, go look at in inventory, bring it back. Uh, and, and then, you know, that's, that could be 40 minutes or an hour or two hours lost um, from something that should have been a very quick change. Mm. That's something that is such a critical thing, that machine runtime, that factories who are you know, able to afford it in the past and could invest in those legacy systems will have lots of, you know, very detailed tracking for that machine runtime. But historically, that hasn't been accessible. It's cost huge amounts of money. It's required consultants. It's been very bespoke systems. Uh, So we have 99% of factories on the planet that are still tracking that critical metric and managing it with very manual methods, whether spreadsheets or clipboards or whiteboards. And so GuideMill comes in uh, and for a company like PenColor, takes them from tracking all of that through people recording when the machine was down and why, to automate in uh, that, that visibility so they can know with certainty exactly what every piece of equipment was doing, exactly when it was down, have all of that data to be able to identify where they can actually get more out of their existing assets. For pet color, what that meant was all of that visibility translated into their existing continuous improvement workflows, but that they were able to get 30 to 35% more production out of their same existing plants, team, and equipment. So think about the impact there. If you're producing certain amounts with the assets that you have and and the costs that you have, and you're suddenly able to increase that amount 30 to 35%, uh, the contribution margin on that additional production is tremendous. And they were suddenly able to hit all of their growth goals uh, and drive
1: tremendously um, from those same existing assets.
0: Yeah, no, that's the work they're already doing.
1: Exactly. I love the plug and play. It sounds like they can come in, use GuideWheel, and immediately start to reap some of these benefits. Absolutely.
0: Typically, you know, if folks are going from not having visibility into what uh-huh. their machines are doing, and suddenly they get to turn the lights on, that has an immediate uh, impact in terms of seeing low-hanging fruit to improve, yeah. aligning the team around real metrics that everyone trusts, and just driving some, some real quick improvement there. And then, of course, on more and more functionality over time that at the pace that's right for the team is when it mm-hmm. starts to get really exciting.
1: Yeah, it's really useful to be able to track progress, figure out what you're lagging on, what your red flags need to be, things you need to be hyper focused on. And it's just very empowering to be able to have that information and then be able to act on it and see the progress you're making. So it's awesome that you're able to provide that to the factories. Seven countries, Lauren. I thought it was just three. This is a lot. This is huge. This is exciting. Congratulations! What's it like Pretty. building across all of these countries? Can you tell me what they are? I thought it was Mexico, U.S., Kenya, but what are the other four? Yeah,
0: yeah. now it's uh, and it's growing every day, as folks know. Well, <laughs> so right now, Mexico, U.S., Canada, Kenya, Uganda, Ireland, Netherlands, and I think we're adding some plants in Germany soon. Uh, wow, Probably a couple more coming, coming down the pike. So, uh, yeah, it's has very exciting. And, and the you know, global team is really one of the big joys of building the wheel. Um, mm-hmm. Teammates spread across all of the continents that we're working in. Um, and the ability to watch folks across the team bringing different ideas, skills, yeah. uh, language in, uh,
1: to support our customers in different ways is just amazing. That's incredible. And then tell me some of the things that you're focused on today as you're building, growing, factories coming in.
0: Yeah, Um, we're definitely always focused on making sure we're supporting all of our existing customers to get the maximum value from the system. Uh, There's nothing that makes me happier than hearing about (laughs) those quantified results. So making sure that uh, the tools being used, uh, everyone has the best practices that they need to benefit from it. And that we're providing any human support um, that's needed with that as well. It's just always really important to us. We want to make sure this isn't just a tool that is accessible or accessible and usable by everyone, but that it ends up getting some practice. So that huge investment in customer experience. Um, I always want to hear when I'm you know, jumping on the phone with a, a customer yeah. and checking on how things are going. I always want to hear that he or she is shocked by the amount of service and support that we provide. That's awesome. So continually yeah, holding ourselves to that. Wildly exceeding expectations standard from a customer experience standpoint. Second, being uh, continually investing. You know what? What is the next set of functionality that's going to drive the most value for our customers? Mm-hmm. Um, we follow the Rice framework: so reach, impact, competence, and effort. Scoring each new potential feature set uh, or area that we could develop, basically based on what is the ROI for our customers of uh, diving in in that area. And balancing that with our long-term factory ops vision. We've been very thoughtful about what's this category of software that the GuideWheel is creating? What does that look like five years and 10 years in the future? And so we're always running this balancing act of taking all of the great suggestions that come from our customers. Uh, everything that's great, it yeah. has been a customer suggestion, something they helped us build. Uh, and then also balancing that against what is the complete and cohesive mission that we're building towards? Because no one wants a a collection of features. What they want is a comprehensive solution and and single pane of glass. So that second area that we're always focused on is how are we continuing to build towards that end goal of complete battery ops by prioritizing the fastest time to impact and highest impact
1: areas for each of our customers. Yeah. Sounds like you're focused on your customer experience, hearing how it's going with an emphasis on you want to shock them by how incredibly thoughtful and present you are for them meeting their needs. I love that. Sounds like you're focused on product development. So taking customer feedback and trying to make sure that you can build a cohesive offering that is really goes above and beyond what the customers need. And then threading that in with your overall business vision. And how does GuideWheel progress in the future? How do you create an environment for your GuideWheel employees? You mentioned at the beginning, mentoring your employees. So yeah, these are some of the things that are top of mind for you as a CEO, as you build. I want to now bring it back to your experience building GuideWheel all the way from the beginning. I know there have been lots of pivots and I like talking about this because to the point earlier of you and your brother, or at least you didn't, this wasn't a perfectly planned out journey and neither was GuideWheel. I know you've had some pivots. You initially thought you were going to do this exclusively in Kenya and in Africa, and you've seen explosive growth outside of that continent. So maybe a summary of the, the ins and outs of how GuideWheel has come to where it is today.
0: Yeah. Love it. And it's also fun, Jen, that you're here for pieces of this journey. So yeah, a, a, a,
1: it's for the long term, but yeah. It's so great to see. I'm so grateful to have been able to see the journey.
0: It's pretty fun. and what to come. So excited for uh, where things go next as well. Um, two areas I think come to mind was a question about, you know, the different pivots along the way. The first is the one that you brought up around geography. So I'll, I'll dive in there, uh, actually a second. Because the other area that comes to mind is, you know, when we first launched in Kenya, we were selling an energy management system. So we Mm -hmm. had, you know, both my co-founder, Weston, uh, had actually met um, when we were undergrads because we cared about climate change. I was heading up Students for Sustainable Stanford. He headed up Energy Crossroads. So that that passion was what uh, first brought us together and and has been shared. We, We incorporated as a public benefit corporation, have that climate mission first and foremost. And the first way that we set out to drive impact for climate within manufacturing was very straightforward. You know, there's this opportunity to leapfrog with energy management systems and build something that's usable, intuitive, uh, and and just, you know, can plug in really nicely and and drive energy impact directly within factories. And factories told us that they cared about this, that it was a a really big priority. So we sold in this great system. And then we saw that in practice. (laughs) <laughs> People are using it on a regular basis. There would be an energy engineer logging in once a month or once a week, and that's just not enough to drive real impact or build a platform that's you know got good habits associated with it and is truly integrated in to the factory's workflows across the whole team. What we did see though was we were watching very closely. You know what is the usage of GuideWheel across all of our different customers. And most customers fit in that bucket. They had bought the energy management system. They were using it as an energy management system, but not very frequently. There was a smaller group, though, of customers where when we looked at the data, they were logging in all the time. Uh, and, and the plant manager, the VP of ops, you know, everyone on the team logging in many times a day and often keeping it live the whole time and looking in, you know, using it, uh, going into the data uh, in a way where we were like, what the heck is that? here. <laughs> Something is going right. Uh, and what we learned from then watching all the ways in which they were using it, talking with them, and kind of exploring that use case more deeply was they were using the energy data from the machines uh, in real time to see what the machines had been doing. Were they running along on load? low to that question that we talked about about downtime? When were they down? Why? Was there an issue on the night shift where you know, machines were down unexpectedly for many hours at a time? Um, were there opportunities for cross training of operators who were running uh, changeovers really well, training uh, you know, operators who were newer to the job? And so they were digging in and seeing all of this data from a very different perspective that actually caused us to say, oh my gosh, this is much higher ROI for the first use case of GuideWheel. Let's design a platform and test selling on this first and then layering in the energy management side after that so we ended up then doing a full uh, design sprint so i think you know as part of the design school we had about empathize design ideate prototype test as this ongoing cycle of flaring out with ideas and focusing in on prototype testing ended up running a full uh, version of that, bringing these, you know, paper mock-ups done in pencil so the customer would feel really comfortable saying, I hate that, or that looks terrible, uh, and having our customers give feedback on how we could redesign GuideWheel to meet that first need. And that's when that unlock happened for us from a product perspective. It was pivoting from energy being first to driving production, what keeps everyone in the factory employed being first, and energy a second. And so it's been really amazing. And I'll pause for a moment before I touch on geography because this, this area of the product piece, um, that pivot was what unlocked growth because it's something that's so much more valuable as that first use case and so much more engaging for the VP of ops, plant manager, and full production team. Now, what we're seeing is we have many customers that are not only layering on the energy management side, once they're full teams of hundreds of people are already using Guide and having a ton more impact on the energy metric because it's used by everybody and and accessible and part of the daily workflow. We're also seeing that the world is changing in some ways that may make it interesting to see if there are customers for whom the energy side actually is the first in. So with the way that sustainability uh, and curved tracking and climate change are gaining more and more prominence in real business. Uh, we're now testing and exploring where might there be ways to pull back um, some of that energy management as the first use case for certain types of customers, uh, which is also really exciting. So just ending iteration and pushing of that same continuous improvement philosophy has led to some major pivots and then lots of continuous improvement over time. I just talked way too much for that. So uh, (laughs) I'll pull out before we talk about geographies.
1: What a great example for entrepreneurs everywhere who are starting up today and trying to figure out product market fit. Very important to listen to your customers, really see to your point, what are they actually using the product for? Also empathizing with the customers, this word that you brought up, really putting yourself in their shoes. If you can't be in their shoes, you can't go to them and ask them like you did, hey, Create an environment where they can feel comfortable saying, I actually don't like that. Because people find that hard to tell you to your face, I don't need this. I don't like it. This is, I don't, yeah. And, but what I actually need and and want and what actually contributes to my bottom line are these things, just creating that safe space, looking in terms of, let's say you had your VP of ops, et cetera, like these roles where Being able to track and be more effective with energy use actually contributed to their bottom lines, helped them be much better at their jobs. These these were things that they had line items, for instance, on that they were tracking and needed. And and then to your point that having people use this and then the energy management becomes secondary byproduct, that's a great uh, perk, which happened to be the thing that you and Weston were solving toward in the first place.
0: It's been interesting also to try to find ways to let customers tell us when they don't like things. So, mm-hmm. often bring in, you know, if we bring in a couple of ideas, two different mock ups of what something could look like, we find it's mm-hmm. really hard for a customer to say they don't like it. What we do now is we'll often bring in 15 or 16 different mock ups mm-hmm. that are all you know, wildly different. And then it becomes much more easy for a customer to say, oh, you know, okay, first one. That looks okay. Second, that looks okay. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Unless we get in a place where they've been able to to say they don't like a couple of things, we can go back to the earlier ones and they can actually say, you know, this piece of this I love, this other piece I don't, uh, and figuring out what kinds of, you said the word safety, like what, what kinds of safe spaces can we create to get people's true, uh, true feeling opinion, truly what yeah. It's been interesting to, to experiment.
1: That's awesome. What a great example. And then geography, the pivot with geography. So this has been fascinating. And
0: I think same with the, the product example, uh, there's a lot going on that is us pivoting towards product market sales uh, or pivoting towards new areas of opportunity and a lot going on that is actually the world changing. So that's been interesting to, to watch as well. Uh, when we first launched in Kenya and you know, started piloting with those groups of factories, uh, the world was a very different place because it was prior to COVID. What we saw in the U.S. was uh, things were actually moving pretty slowly in terms of digitization of the factories more. Um, some folks had legacy systems in place. There was a lot of resistance to cloud prior to COVID. And so part of the, the launch in the US was discovery about how useful that could be uh, in the US, Mexico, Canada, that North American zone. But part of it was also that COVID had happened and had taken all of the tailwind that had been driving digitization and accelerated them like crazy. Uh, that resistance to cloud in a, in a moment got removed. Yeah.
1: You
0: know, how challenging it was to not have cloud. Um, the urgency around visibility, partly because of the teams not being able to travel and also partly because of the pressure that increased on manufacturing in that moment and the immense uh, need to get more capacity out of existing assets and plants uh, in the U.S. took the opportunity and, uh, you know, forced a lot of faster change than had been happening prior to COVID as well. I think it was a combination of always trying to keep our eyes out on what's happening in the world, Uh, also looking first principles at where the opportunity was, learning, for example, that a lot of machines are still very old. The average age of equipment on the factory floor here is 20 plus years. Um, So really seeing that opportunity um, and then also consistently testing. So when we decided to launch it, we didn't just go for it. What we did was run a couple of tests in Indonesia and Mexico and U.S. and Canada and a couple of other places and see if we could identify, you know, early on in the minimum of the way um, where the demand would be. And that was what then gave us the confidence to really to testing and then seeing such success in the state.
1: Yeah. So I heard a couple of things. One, constantly keeping an open mind and ear on the ground to what's happening and evolving and changing in the market. And then I heard a lot about testing before entering a new market, trying to figure out what an MVP would look like and seeing what customers' reactions to that would be, because ultimately you're going to need to update that before you can enter that market. It can sometimes be hard to keep an ear on the ground always while you're building. Things get busy, like you're working on delivering an exceptional customer experience already to existing customers, building out the product you're selling into new markets, and you're taking care of your team, and sometimes keeping an ear on the market can get forgotten almost. Tell me about your tips for that, and then tell me about how entrepreneurs can think about testing.
0: Well, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on both of those
1: as well. Okay.
0: Great, great <laughs> topics. Um, yeah, the first one, of uh, how do you keep your ear to the ground while balancing all of those other things? Um, One of the things that we've done there and and want to continue to do is actually build that here to the ground into our day-to-day processes. So one example of this is in every sales conversation that we have, um, we try to build in testing of our hypotheses around the major trends that are affecting the day-to-day and the bottom line of folks in our industry. So one of the things that we do is the second slide we put up is... uh, here are the main things that we see going on in the space right now, which of these resonate most for you. So for manufacturing at this moment, uh, it's the macro uncertainty, inflation, and supply and demand matching. It's the talent and labor challenge, supply chain, and then increasing regulation and that sustainability and industry side fitting in. And, you know, in a, in a conversation yesterday, that slide went up and they said, oh, you nailed it. These are the <laughs> <laughs> Um, if at any point we aren't hearing that, uh, we don't take it as, oh, these are no longer valid, we try to look. more. So we say, oh, you know, okay, one of these resonates the most, it's a part of chain for youth. Then we learn about lead times have increased from four weeks to 90 weeks. Uh, talent for us, we think we've solved that in the near term, but we see over the longer term. It's kind of collecting that richness of data uh, and making sure that we're seeing when things are changing in a general way. Um, but also not taking too seriously uh, industry or geography or other kind of differences that might make us feel fitted. So continually building and checking of what are the trends we should be aware of and what are the things that are affecting our customers' worlds into how we interact with them at a place where we're touching lots of different folks. Uh, has been extremely helpful and, and effective there. Um, the other thing that we try to do is make sure that with our existing customers, we're running advisory calls. So uh, we have a regular set of advisory network um, meetings where we'll always start off with what's happening in your world that we should be aware of or that affects your day-to-day. Uh, and starting with that general point of view, customers are just so uh, smart and thoughtful and you know tied in to the things in their world far better than, than we ever could be. So making sure we're asking that question proactively and not just jumping straight into, um, you know, what little pieces of guide rail do you want to change or what little pieces are most valuable to you has been very effective.
1: So building that in consistently. can I hear your answer? Though? I totally agree. If you're a B2B, for instance, building in, making sure that your account managers who are seeing your account and your salespeople are trained to keep attuned and in touch with the customers on. Hey, what's working? Hey, what's not working? What are you seeing in the industry? What should we be doing that we're not? like? To your point, they are the best at this industry. They're doing it day-to-day. You're not really doing it day-to-day. You're serving them day-to-day. And so always learning and embedding that into your processes because we fall to the standard and level of our processes. So making sure that those processes are there to support us to hit whatever standard it is that we want to be hitting. Love it. We do indeed fall to the level of (laughs) our (laughs) arthroscopy. And then on testing, from my perspective, at least, I think it's so important to test. I see a lot, even in myself, this fear of putting something out before you feel like it's ready, it's fully fleshed out and it's so important to just put something out there and start to get market feedback. So with this podcast, if it was the first few episodes that weren't perfect and I was nervous that, oh no, this isn't so great and I can see so many things that I could have improved and I don't really wanna put this out there, but put it out and start to get market feedback and see what's working, what's not. Talk to your customers, see what they're liking, and then you can use that to improve. Having some data and feedback is better than none. And and use that to then continue to improve your product is my thought on testing.
0: Love it! And completely agree. I second everything that you said around putting something out and all the feedback that you get back. Uh, I think what we've also tried to do is build in a lot of telemetry so we can learn quickly uh, if someone's getting stuck in a certain area, or mm-hmm. what we put out isn't getting used. Uh, not necessarily mm-hmm. that new feature doesn't have value, but oh, maybe we have not communicated it to anyone that it
1: exists. Yeah
0: in a way that didn't match the persona. So hearing um, that data-driven um, kind of ability to know what we expect and monitor if things differ from what we expect um, with that constant uh, kind of courage. Um, yeah. still putting yourself out there, even you know, if it's not quite.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It all comes back to your dad and the data. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting because so many times our hypotheses aren't necessarily right and You can follow the data. I think being able to merge that intellectual analytical thinking with developing and building your product and growing are really helpful here. Awesome. I want to transition us to another question, Lauren, that I'd love to get your take on as a badass woman building a company in a traditionally male-dominated space, so factories, and then also fundraising, which is also traditionally male-dominated. So thank goodness this is changing today. And also everyone's experience is different. So I don't want to be going into labels. What is your experience as a woman building in the factory space and fundraising? Have you felt like you were treated differently, either for the better or worse? And do you have any stories you could share?
0: Yeah, definitely. And such an interesting question. Um, I would say I love working in manufacturing as a woman. I just, I make, it's just I love working in manufacturing. Uh, <laughs> That's
1: awesome.
0: I love the continuous improvement. I love the practicality, and I love the way that our customers are always focused on bringing the team along. It's just truly a, a team sport. So I can't say enough good things about manufacturing, and hope we get more women in this space. So come, come join.
1: Um, We've got Lauren Dunford and Mary Barra leading the way.
0: <laughs> oh, I
1: admire Mary tremendously.
0: So <laughs> 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 I with her name. <laughs> Definitely one Yeah, one a little bit. <laughs> um, but but in terms of kind of what my experience has been in many stories, I think the the thing that sticks out to me in all of those spaces, whether it's manufacturing, um, whether it's investing, and then I'll also put in there the early team who's willing to take a bet and join is for the vision. Mm-hmm. And in all of those areas, I think what I've found is there are just these amazing people out there who are willing and eager to take a bet on something that could and will be amazing. And so, you know, when it comes to within manufacturing, we have customers who I never met in person and who have taken a bet on guide being something and the you know, RT being something they want to believe in and have been catalytic for our support. Uh, that's early customers we piloted with Kenya. Um, that's customers in the States that have expanded us across all the regions and, and made those early bets. And uh, that has just been something I will never ever forget. I pay those customers back in and great features and so much you know, love and support over time. Um, so, so seeing folks just be willing to, to dive in and take that bet, even without, especially because a lot of this was during COVID, meeting me or the team in person uh, just struck me so much and made me feel so excited to do that for others as well. Um, In the investing space, I would say I've had the same experience. We have this amazing army of angel investors who bet on us early on and have continued to not only, you know, support with their time and and, uh, cheering and and words of encouragement, but also have made some of the most important connections and given some of the most important advice uh, over the years. And those angels just, you know, From all different backgrounds, um, taking that bet and um, being with us for this journey, wherever it leads over time, is is kind of a similar phenomenon that I've been so grateful for. Uh, And then with the the later rounds of funding and um, larger checks and certain individuals just stepping up and saying, I believe in this Uh, and I'm going to stand by it and I'm going to support and put put my money where my mouth is. I've been lucky uh, to have folks do that from all walks of life, certainly not uh, just women supporting or men standing up and, and being really supportive as well. So
1: I love but, to hear it.
0: Yeah, I just feel so lucky. Like, thank you to all these people. Let me pay it for
1: as much as I can. We also just appreciate the heck
0: out of it and do these folks proud. And then the last thing I just do want to add to you know, the factory space and the industry space is the early employees, um, you know, the team that, we're willing to you know, take a risk when we were small, uh, still willing to take a risk when growing like crazy, but in a space that's a little non traditional. Um, I just feel really grateful to all of those individuals as well. The many that are you know, with us and, and building like crazy on God Bill right now, some who've gone on to do other things. It's just such a privilege to get to uh, feel you know, the, the trust that folks put in me and our team. Um, to join in and give their most precious time um, to help build and uh, getting to build together. And this, being on that journey over time is uh, one of the things that makes this just such a privilege and so much fun. So I um, Ellen yeah. early team into the mix there as well.
1: Yeah. Kudos to you as well, Lauren, because part of that trust in someone taking a chance to work with a fledgling startup, which is what guide wheel was at the beginning and obviously now you're much bigger with lots more funding but part of that trust is you and where you're coming from you and weston and your vision and the hard work that you put in and the culture that you created for these folks and your investment in them back so kudos to you as well for creating that sort of space for folks to want to come follow you
0: well i feel so lucky I feel like i'm definitely getting more the giving but very committed to making everyone proud.
1: And then Lauren, 95% of startups fail, but 100% of entrepreneurs succeed, whether in one venture or another that they end up taking on. What do you think has contributed to your success thus far?
0: Hmm. Always a journey. So I think I'm always kind of focused on how do we continue to get better? I do think in thinking about for someone in my shoes, what would, what would I advise? Um, mm-hmm. And that kind of um, continuous push to learn and, prove and and iterate would be the area I think that um, that does really stand out. Uh, and this may, may come back to my dad and that, that curiosity yeah. for learning. Um, I was, you know, in the midst of a, a challenging career a year or two ago. You're raising a funding round, feeling like, oh my gosh, this is my first time doing that. How the heck is this going to work? And uh, I I was talking with my dad and uh, feeling a little bit down expressing that. And what he said was, said, Lauren, sounds like this is a
1: great opportunity to learn. Oh my goodness, I love that. To learn. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, what great framing.
0: You just got to shift into learning mode. What a great opportunity this is. Uh, and I think that framing of there could never be a better opportunity to have, to your point, of no ceiling for uh, all of the learning opportunities uh, in the world in this entrepreneurial seat. And uh, every challenge is just a, a gift of how do we learn from this and help it make us all well and stronger for the future? Um, one of the things I like, actually, Lynn co founder of Sunrun, had, in, had included this in something she said. It comes from the 15 Commitments of con- Conscious Leadership. And the saying is, all people and circumstances are my allies, helping me learn the most in my journey of growth. And so trying to continue to maintain, you know, if life were giving me a great gift with this challenge, what would that gift be? <laughs> How do I unwrap it, even if it does not appear to be a gift at the first moment? How do I figure out what that wrapping paper is? Remove it. You know, dig down for that little nugget of of gold wisdom and learning uh, is I think the attitude that certainly keeps me going. Um, hope to to transmit to others as well.
1: And what's important there that you just shared is again it's taking ownership for the situation you're in and. Taking control over the situation, not being a victim of the situation, but thinking, okay, this is happening. It may be happening to me, but how can I uh have more ownership over what's occurring to your point? If it's fundraising. And fundraising is incredibly hard. You hear so many more no's than you hear yes. And it's demoralizing. You question yourself, you question your vision, you question wait, what am I doing here? And you gotta really dig deep and look at yourself and have the confidence and say, you know what, I believe in this mission i know that i've checked my facts and my assumptions and i have market proof and i've talked to my customers and i have conviction that this needs to exist and i'm going to go out there and i'm going to explain to these people and maybe they don't get it now but they'll get it later and the ones that do get it great and it's incredibly hard journey that it that Every entrepreneur should know about, but also taking control over the situation and saying, okay, so I heard these no's. What can I learn from this? Maybe I didn't pitch it in a way that folks understood. Maybe I could have shared more market data. Maybe I could have taken into account this investor's background and what they. Care about in the previous example of empathy and putting yourself in your customer's shoes. How do you put yourself in your investor's shoes and get to the bottom of it? What do they actually care about? What do they not care about? Let me focus on the former and just keep getting better. And I think it's hard to focus on that and getting better because it's much easier to just stay the same. And but the thing is, the world is changing to your point, things are evolving and we're all works in progress. I think leaning into that and leaning into feedback and growth and it's hard, but I think finding joy and the hardship of it is a practice that is so, I can't emphasize enough how important and, and useful that is to just self-improvement. And I think there's also everyone's a work in progress. Nobody's perfect. So maybe you get some less than that, knowing that it's not just you, it's everyone. But for me, it's also just about finding joy in the process of growth and how can I grow today? How can I grow this week at maybe having a goal at the end of the week or of how, what did I improve on this week and if not maybe you need to check back on your processes that set you up for success and make sure in your processes you're having ways to grow and improve
0: building into the process how am I getting better and better
1: every day uh,
0: And uh, one thing that Jen that sparks is uh and the thing that's helped me a lot in this is you know, first of all if my objective is learning and growth. It's very comforting to wake up and say, there's nowhere else I'd to, to be doing because there is no greater opportunity for growth than what's six weeks right now. Um, what I also try to do there, and I'm curious if you have similar, it sounds like that weekly cadence and, and daily cadence has been helpful to you. So I'll turn this thing that I do over to you and then see if- Yeah. Uh, but what I love to do as well is learning sprints. So structuring every two weeks, What's something that meets a top priority for the company that I don't know how to do yet, but should, <laughs> because I'm responsible for driving that top priority for the company. And so over the past couple of years, structuring those learning strengths uh, to be everything from how do I interview extremely well, or how do we name the different products or pieces of the company uh, in a really thoughtful and good way? And how do we you know, run a great fundraising process? How do we run a great board meeting? Uh, being able to kind of section off what is what am I learning in a dedicated way uh, these couple of weeks, and then look back and say, Oh my gosh, look at these you know 26 different areas that I got the opportunity yeah. to dive in and not only learn theoretically but apply uh, over the course of the last year has been a tool that's also been, been really helpful to me.
1: Any no, absolutely, kind of yeah, tactical perspective, absolutely, and I actually want to get better at this. Would love to get better at looking at some things that I'm excited to learn in the next year and then planning them out by quarter and then breaking that down by month. Right now I'm good at having goals and having a shorter timeframe. So this sprint where I can see the end. And then I can break. So if it's a month sprint, I can break that down by weeks and then I can track progress at the end of each week. But if you can expand that out and then you can see maybe at the end of next year, if you want to learn a language or you want to learn a programming language or you want to learn a skill like maybe 3D design or whatever it is that you're interested in at this point in time. It's fascinating to see how making time for the longer term things that you want to be able to do and not just being reactive with your schedule but making time for the important things that you want to learn that are not as urgent how much progress you could make by just dedicating and making sure you block time off for that in your day
0: it's interesting too because it's it's that's a great point about the important not urgent what i've also mm-hmm. found is that approaching it from a learning perspective forces me to lean into the things that the company actually badly needs but i don't know yeah. how to do so i would otherwise avoid and helps me make sure that I'm tackling those things head on, uh, even if I don't exactly know how to approach them yet. So I think it's also been helpful in terms of um, focusing always on the things, the thing that's going to lift the most versus the thing that
1: is easiest or seemingly most urgent. Right. We're more connected than ever before. And so it's so easy to just be reactive of, oh, I got these 50 emails today or whatever it is, and I got to respond to all of them. But Just taking a step back and saying, hey, what are my companies or my projects? Or if you're in school, what are my top priorities that may not be as urgent, but move the needle the most uh, that have the biggest bang for my buck? And then let me make sure I'm prioritizing those and then being ruthless with deprioritizing things. I also am a big, big, big believer in the fact that I think we can only do so many things really well. It's really important to keep the things on our plate minimal. Because you can do those things well, and then maybe in one sprint, and then in your the next sprint you can add some other things and be done. So I'd much rather do a few things really well, and so on and so forth. And that means ruthless prioritization of your time. You have one life, so. Yes. Uh, all right, off this off the soap opera. <laughs> one thing I love about you, Lauren, as we wrap up, is your energy, which I mentioned at the beginning. You are our energizer bunny. You have two modes, you have on and you have sleep. And again, speaking of ruthless prioritization, you prioritize sleep so well, and I'm a big fan of your process. So I love you to tell us about how you do that and how you keep your energy high when you're on as well. Yeah. You know me so well. <laughs> I've
0: been on sleep, and I also think I'm lucky and, and privileged to be in a position where if I prioritize it, I can usually make it happen. Um, and I think Jen, I had expressed to you my theory behind this, so I'm gonna just you know,
1: express it to yeah, group of all the people.
0: Yeah, um, my theory behind this came from some article that I read at some point, so who knows how scientific it is. Um, but my approach is if I can do 12 hours of work at 100%, uh, it is going to be better than 14 hours of work at 70%. And when I don't get enough sleep, I quickly find my efficiency decreasing, how good I am with the team and the customers decreasing, and so i just really take care to prioritize how can i stay at 100% uh, and and if it takes you know going to bed earlier and subtracting a couple of less efficient hours of work that i could have tried to fit in at the end of the day uh, i'm all in as you said we only have one life so you know in addition to efficiency it's also let's have life have the color and vibrancy you know, mm-hmm. that comes when we have enough sleep and not be that, uh, that, at least for me, that dull gray. <laughs>
1: like, yeah. You know, oh my God. That's true. Like,
0: yeah. I get all you know, hot and just unhappy. <laughs> hot, hot
1: and sad. And yeah, not the way to live. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So I, I just, i just really prioritizing that. I How many that. hours do you get? Oh gosh. So I, no, this is good. I want you to say it because you inspired me because I, I need, I think, eight, eight and a half hours of sleep, but I tend not to do as good a job as getting as much sleep. And when you told me your number, I was like, I am getting my eight and a half hours of sleep. I'm going to do nine if I want to. <laughs> quickly target a
0: minimum of eight and a half hours. And I will often be in the nine and a half hour range. And to make that possible, I will make sure I'm in bed for longer than that. So whether it's, you know, 10 hours in bed and I come out feeling completely refreshed and then I'm completely on and enjoying and super effective in the rest of the day. Uh, Eight and a half is the minimum I strive for.
1: Yeah. And I so resonate with what you were saying. I really love the things I get to spend my time on and not getting enough sleep can tend to impact that. I tend to get more impatient and not as efficient.
0: All of that focus. And I know there will probably be times in each of our lives that we can't you know, get that amount of sleep, certainly
1: you know, travel and other things. And then maybe, you know, time yeah. periods where it just... Went. I'm sure all the parents just rolled their eyes at... That- <laughs> no. I <laughs> <laughs> <Get my laughs> like, you little shit. Okay. <laughs> I haven't slept in five years. <laughs> well, I- I'm banking. I'm building my battery until then. How's
0: that? <laughs> exactly. Um, I think that the thing for me that's um, just, affects my mindset of this is our work is ultimately about how effective we are. And so mm-hmm. if I can increase my effectiveness um, or put myself in a place where I'm making the best decisions in a swift and thoughtful way, that uh, that will ultimately be much better for the company than me not being in a place where I'm making good decisions or not being in a place where I'm being effective, but doing a couple of hours every day of you
1: know, emails or spreadsheets. So that's just the, the overall approach that I, I try to approach it. Absolutely. Love it. This was great, Lauren. I learned so much from you as always. And it was wonderful to have you on Power Hour. What a blast. Thank you so much. Ton from you and what a fun conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like what you hear, leave a review and share.